Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Tux Digital Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about batteries in laptops, what ratings are important, how they work, and how to maintain your batteries to get the most life out of them. Then we head to Camera Corner, where Wendy will discuss a tilt-only lens. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what do you got your hands on? So I found something that when I told Ryan about it earlier before we started the show, he had not heard of this before, so I am super happy. I finally found something that, Ryan, you haven't heard of, and that is a ghost display. So, Ooh, just before Halloween, too. That's exciting. I mean, very before. Yeah, a lot before. But yes. <laughs> but ghost display is a basically a little dongle that you plug into the back of your computer and wear into your GPU, and you are essentially telling the GPU that there is a monitor connected when there isn't one. And the purpose of this is to create a dummy um, monitor or a virtual monitor, essentially, that you can then do whatever you want with it. Now, the reason I wanted to do it is because I found a piece of software that allows you to use your tablet as a secondary monitor or a portable monitor. And what it does is that you can tell the computer that it uses this device to tell the computer that it has a virtual monitor, and then you send that virtual monitor to your tablet. And that way, the tablet itself doesn't actually have to have the software to connect to it. It just displays the virtual monitor that you have with this dummy device thing. And I don't have the device yet. It's I just ordered it yesterday. So hopefully it will be coming in soon. I'll be playing with it and tell you about it next episode and see like how it worked out. But I'm looking forward to it. And the software that allows you to do it is called D-Screen, D-E-S-K-R-E-E-N. And I'll have, we'll have links in the show notes. But this is a really interesting uh, project that I have wanted to try, but I didn't have a way to actually make it work and send it out until I found these device, little devices that allows you to create that virtual monitor. So I'm excited to play with this. So you're going to use this on your laptop or your main computer? My main computer. My purpose for this is to have my tablet that's, you know, that the one that we talked about in a previous episode that has the dock. The Lenovo M8. Yes. Yeah. So that one is going to be docked on my desk, but also it will have stuff from my actual desktop computer in a monitor, a small monitor from that. So it's kind of like adding an extra monitor that isn't really taking up that much space. But the idea is multifaceted. I have many different use cases for it. But like the limitations you have with a tablet is if the app works, then great, you can use a tablet for it. But if you need something that the app, there's not an app for it on a tablet, then you can't really you know, use that as the benefit. So this dummy device allows me to use anything I have on my main computer on this device. And basically that allows me to give, have like an, not an unlimited amount of options, but a much, much more flexible workflow. Very interesting. Unlimited power. Power. For your display port. So what makes it a dummy is there's no other connections on the other side of it. It's essentially just utilizing that port and faking out the computer. So it's just a dummy yes. device. It's yes. dumb. It's very dumb. So dumb. It's very dumb. But I like how they called it a ghost display instead of a dumb display. Because <laughs> it is basically a dummy monitor. Like That's the purpose. But the, um, the concept is that it also allows you to do different resolutions and stuff. So you can go in and basically use your desktop environment telling it what type of monitor it is. So it gives you like this big range of like a 4K monitor or you can make it at whatever size you want. So it's very flexible in that sense. So you can make it fit a small tablet or a larger tablet or whatever you want. And I'm, I was just really interested in trying it out. And it's also only like $16. So it's a reasonable price. Oh, that's for, not bad. 
yeah, for testing out something like this. So I'm looking forward to playing with it. And I was also thinking about maybe attaching it to a teleprompter thing because I have this really cool <laughs> uh, teleprompter software on my computer that is uh, drastically better than the teleprompters on tablets because there, there are teleprompter apps on Android, but they're all very jank and I don't like them. I've tried them before, but they're all ugh. And I found one for Linux and also other operating systems uh, that is called QPrompt, and it works very well, but it's also not that great when I don't have it going through an actual teleprompter glass you know, contraption. And having this dummy monitor should make it possible for me able to do it through the tablet. Nice. That's very cool. Well, you're going to have to let us know how that all works out. And Wendy, what have you been doing with hardware? I am so sorry to say I have nothing going on with hardware. We've been so busy, and I know this is an excuse, but we've been so busy with Magneto's Family Reunion the last couple of weeks that I've got nothing. I apologize. Shame. Shame. I, pure shame. I do need to know, is uh, was Scholar Witch there? No. At the Family Reunion? <laughs> Actually, Quicksilver? Well, there was a witch there, but that's a little different. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and no relatives asked you to fix their hardware or anything for them while you were there? That's shocking. No, no relatives asked me to fix their hardware. I didn't work on any of that, though I did spend a lot of time cooking. We smoked some pork shoulder for the whole family. And we did have a canopy that was caught by the wind and completely destroyed. It couldn't be anybody else's but ours. So we're down a canopy. That's the hardware I've been dealing with is shades that are now destroyed and in the garbage that sounds the opposite of fun right absolutely but it turned out really good i'm glad it's over now this week we are preparing for magneto's class reunion which should be an absolute blast but it does have me getting ready to leave the house once again though i think you more than make up for my lack of hardware with another microphone well, not quite a microphone. This is a microphone cloud lifter. So Michael actually got me interested in this concept because this was another thing I really didn't know anything about and what a cloud lifter is or what they do. But essentially, this is giving you an extra 25 decibels of noise-free amplification to a low-output microphone. So in essence... This little device plugs into your mixer and then your microphone plugs into it in case the one that I have. And you have a cable that runs to both. Michael has one where I think you just plug it directly into the mixer. It doesn't have a cable in between one of the sides, which is kind of nice. Yeah, mine's way better but the, is, what, is what he's saying. Wow, rude. <laughs> very, very rude. Uh, but it reduces things like feedback that you get through the mixing stages. It sends a more cleaner signal to your microphone it's overall just supposed to make it sound better, and it utilizes phantom power on a mixer in order to power the cloud lifter and do this, which is interesting because the microphone I have does not, the Rode Procaster does not utilize phantom power by itself. It doesn't need it. But when you're using this, you turn that on, and then it basically sends a much cleaner signal through to the microphone. And it definitely sent a lot more signal to the microphone. So before... I had the amplification, the gain up probably about 50, 60% of the way to mm -hmm. full volume. And now with this, I'm somewhere around 10% of mm -hmm. the volume that uh, I would use. So, I mean, it, I had to lower it significantly because it was just such, it was so much signal coming through it, so much gain coming through it with this little device plugged in. So I think it's doing its job. I don't know that it provides a huge difference in the microphone, but a lot of people who had the Rode Procaster recommended it because when I was looking into them after Michael mentioned it, I saw a lot of people with this particular microphone saying that it helps create a more natural tone and things to your voice. So I picked one up. I have it installed. You tell me if you can hear the difference between me before and me now because the mic and everything else have stayed the same so they're gonna have to compare it with this this episode and the episode before i think they need to listen to all other episodes all 64 and then compare it to 65 agreed agreed yes now i do think it's a good idea to have a booster of some sort whether it's a cloud lifter or whether it's the better choice of a fet head uh, which is the one i have for those who are curious and <laughs> 
Well, the reason I say that is because the cloud lifter brings uh, gives you a 25 decibel boost, and the fet head gives you a 27 decibel boost. So, boom. That changes everything. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but and the, why are you calling me names on the show? Like, we just want to know what the I'm product's not calling called. You, you don't a need to call head. me. I'm not calling you a fet head. Oh. I'm calling the product a fet head. When I first oh. heard the name, when someone said it, like, casually, they were like, I got a fet head. And I'm like, what's the name of the product, though? <laughs> Because it was so weirdly, you know, said. And then I looked it up. I'm like, okay, that's a weird st- sentence. So I looked it up and found that it actually is called Fethead. F-E-T-H-E-A-D. And sure, why not? The reason I chose the Fethead is solely so that it, it was one of the few that could directly connect into the mixer. Because most of the ones, would you'd, you'd be able to see it on the microphone because they wouldn't be, it wouldn't fit the mixer. Or it's the cloud lifter type where it's an independent thing that you have to have multiple cables. And the FET head just seemed like an easier choice, and that's why I went with it. But there's also uh, pr- reviews for both the cloud lifter and the FET head saying that they are both really good products. So I, I think that either one of those ch- options is going to be a good option depending on your needs. Uh, but it is really good because... It allows you to lower the gain, which also lowers like the signal noise and line noise and stuff like that. So the lower the gain, the more clear the boost will be. And that's why when you had to knock it down to 10, like I knocked it down to about 25, I think, and then boosted it back up with the Fed head. And the, the quality of the sound is so much better when you do it that way because you don't have to worry about trying to like get rid of the room noise that's created by the the yeah. cable itself and stuff like that. And that's definitely one of the issues that I ran into when I was trying to record class this last school year is I had bumped up the gain trying to capture all of the voices in the room and then it made it incredibly hard to actually hear those voices because the room noise was overpowering everything. For those who are not f- familiar with what gain is and what and like the difference between gain and volume, I saw this really interesting way of describing it from an, like an audio engineer type. He said that the way you get water into a house, the water main that's going into your house, that is the gain. And then your volume control would be the faucet at your sink. So it's giving you a lot more limitations with a more precise usage with volume and gain gives you like how much you have to use in the volume. So that sh- hopefully that helps people who don't know what the difference between volume and gain is. That's very cool. And you know what? That person who told you that is not a fat head at all. That's a very good description. <laughs> that is a good description. I like it. You know what I also like? Digital Ocean because this episode of Hardwretics is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of the size, whether you have a team of one person or a team of a thousand people. DigitalOcean helps you t- your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of the Hardware Addicts and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux. 2022. That's do.co slash tux 2022. So again, go get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux 2022. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So on Destination Linux last week, we were discussing some of the new laptops that had been released in the Linux world. Some really exciting laptops that were coming out with great screens, really nice chassis, the whole deal. And one of the things that came up multiple times when we were talking about laptops is their battery life. Now, I want to ask both of you, when a manufacturer tells you that you're going to get eight hours of battery life in their description, do any of you actually believe you get eight hours of battery life? Absolutely not. I absolutely believe it. 
because what I do is I take my laptop, I turn off all of the actual usage resource usage applications, and I go into a very isolated dark room, and that's the only place I ever use the computer. <laughs> well, then you're you're mimicking the way that they rate batteries and put those hours out perfectly then, Michael, because that's exactly what they do. So yes. when you see a hardware manufacturer who's telling you that you're going to get eight hours of battery life on it, Wendy's 100% correct in that, no, we don't believe that. And Michael's 100% correct too, though, that the reason why they claim that is not because they just made up some arbitrary number, but usually they put every power saving feature on, they have every energy efficiency mode on, and they lower the brightness of the screen to the absolute minimum where you could barely see the text. And then they only have a text document open or something like that to be able to say or make the claim that you're getting those eight hours. So it's very frustrating for somebody who's out there in the market looking for a laptop and battery life is important for you. If you're just using it as a desktop replacement, then it may not matter as much. And often you'll see gaming laptops and things like that. They only claim four to six hours. You might only get two out of them. Generally, you're getting just a very small percentage of whatever they quote. So if I see a laptop manufacturer, for instance, say they're going to get eight hours of battery life, I assume it's more like five to six hours that you would actually get out of that for normal usage. And if you're doing something high end, that's even worse. You're maybe looking at two hours if the laptop's capable of gaming and things. So this is a very confusing world for people to look at and a very scammy thing and a lot of people just end up looking for or waiting for reviewers to actually validate the claims of the battery life that the manufacturers say that they're going to get. So today we're going to go through a high level of what some of these numbers mean, some things to look for, and some ways to take care of your battery because it's a very important part of your laptop. And unfortunately, depending on the manufacturer of the laptop you buy, they're not necessarily always easily replaceable or even replaceable at all anymore too so that's a problem as well so you really want to pay attention make sure you're getting something you can repair but we'll get into that in a moment just out of curiosity wendy do you look for when you're buying a laptop a laptop that has a really long battery life or do you just assume you need to be next to an ac outlet at all times to be fair it's been a really really long time since i have bought a brand new laptop and we are talking years I have been in the used market, which I know we'll get to that a little bit later, but I make sure no matter where we're going that we bring a power cord with us. We regularly bring our laptops to my in-law's house when we're there for the weekend, and we don't leave without a power cord because I'm not betting that the laptop's going to make it through the weekend if I have to use a lot without needing to be plugged in. When I went on a road trip recently, I put a DC to AC power converter into the car and so I could keep my laptop charged the entire time that we were there. But one of the machines that honestly, the battery just blew me away where I was actually impressed, where they actually did meet the standards of the amount of hours that they were quoting was the new Apple M1. The MacBook Air M1 just has the most unbelievable battery life of any laptop I've ever used or played with. Um, usually I'm so used to being next to or making sure that my laptops are always plugged in because if they're not plugged in, even if you're not using it and the lid's closed, generally it's still draining the battery down and by the morning if you try to turn it on, it'll be completely dead. With the M1, I've gone days for getting to charge it, lift the lid, and it still has 40% of its battery life. It's just insane the amount of battery that they're getting out of that. And a lot of it has to do with the type of battery that they're using, which is very high quality, but also the fact they're using the big little architecture inside with the CPUs and the GPU, which allows them to turn on power saving cores instead of the power hungry cores at all times, which saves battery quite a bit. But otherwise, I'm pretty much always trying to plan around where there's an AC outlet to plug my laptops in. And I buy a lot of new ones, but it's the same story. You're lucky to get four to six hours out of them if you're doing anything more than text editing. And that includes if you're just watching YouTube videos and things, you know, they quote eight to 12, you're lucky to get four to six out of them. Yeah, I used to have a desktop replacement laptop many years ago until I realized the biggest problem with that is that the batteries of those laptops were essentially 
just there to have you have a suspend option so that you can walk from one place to another and then power it back on and plug it in. Like that's, yeah. they lasted maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes with like real usage. So that's the only time I ever used them. And it got to the point where I just decided to remove the battery entirely and just use it as it always plugged in. And then remember to, you know, not work, not try to do that whole suspend a walk around thing. And now that I have a new laptop that's relatively modern and it has a much better battery life, there's times where I forget, you know, that I'm on, I'm not, I'm on battery. Like I used to carry it with me and like go down to like a coffee shop or whatever and have it plugged in with like just, you know, it's really annoying to go to a coffee shop and you don't, you're at a table that doesn't have an outlet. And now I don't even take the power cord with me. I just take the laptop and then that's it because it lasts so long. I don't have to care. And that's just so awesome. Now I don't rem- I'm not going to sit there for 15, 20 hours or nothing, but it's plenty of time for that sort of thing of like working at a sh- at a coffee shop, something like that. So the battery life that they've gotten so far has been drastically improved from the previous days but I would suspect that the desktop replacements would still have that same kind of problem. Now, my question is, what kind of work are you doing on this laptop while you're sitting in the coffee shop? Because I'm guessing it's not video editing. It is not video editing. I've done that a couple of times, but it's not very convenient to use a touchpad for, for editing, in my opinion. And But I do graphic design work, and I will do like writing and stuff like that on the laptop. And that that's totally fine. Now, the graphic design work is a little bit awkward, but that's just because of the workflow that I'm used to, not necessarily, you know, being on the laptop. And it works great for that kind of workflow. So that's very common with these desktop replacements, what you described there. If you, in fact, pick up one of these laptops that are gaming laptop, it has all the good specs in it that you would expect, a really nice processor, really nice discrete GPU, Maybe even nice keyboard and trackpad and all of that, but it's just way cheaper than the other machines. There's two things they're likely putting in there that are cheapening it. Number one is a cheap battery, and number two is a cheap screen. And so those are two things to definitely look for. So just because it's supposed to be portable, it kind of sort of is, but you're lucky to get an hour or two out of them, if that, especially if you're running a discrete GPU or things. But battery technology has come a really long way. We know that in general, batteries take chemical energy, convert them to electrical current. This powers our phones, our laptops, now our cars, everything mobile, everything you drive now. People are looking to put batteries in it, and the technology has grown with that. And I think most people are familiar in your high-end electronics, you're going to see lithium-ion batteries. But the newer version of this technology is very interesting, which is the lithium-ion polymer which uses this conductive plastic. It's more malleable than lithium ion batteries. And instead of liquid, it uses like a porous chemical compound or gel-like electrolyte. So this means that you can make batteries in a bunch of different shapes than what you've seen traditionally. So if you open up a laptop today, you may see some batteries kind of crammed in all kinds of different crevices which wasn't the case with batteries of old. You remember the replaceable batteries on the older laptops? You could click the two buttons and pop the battery out the back. Those were like 18650 batteries that were inside, and they were kind of uh, daisy-chained together, if you will. These ones are able to mold in all kinds of different shapes, which allows the manufacturers to do some really creative things to put a lot more battery power into a laptop that's still thin, or even into your phone, for instance, and be able to provide a good amount of power for the devices that you're using. That's really cool. I haven't seen the different shapes or stuff, but you're saying that, that it has a gel-like electrolyte, so it's it's what plants crave? That's good. It's exactly what plants crave. That's right. <laughs> and aside from the difference in just material, you also have advancements, of course, in the chips that are embedded into the batteries, which help control things like your discharge rate, prevent overcharging, the overheating, the swelling, the potential fires that can happen. So all of this, I think, overall is a big win for the consumer. It doesn't always work, but for the most part, it does. Otherwise, we'd be having exploding devices all over the place if they didn't. So they've done a really good job with battery technology. There's been a lot of advancement in it. 
a lot of that probably due to the automotive industry as well that's been pushing so hard to get more more travel time out of the batteries than ever before. I think phones played a major role in that too. Do you remember the days, especially of the early True. smartphones, yeah. when you had to completely cycle the battery? And I loved flashing ROM, especially in the early days of Android. And in order to kind of balance everything out and have the battery working properly, I had to cycle it all the way to empty and then a full recharge. We don't have to do that anymore. Yep. That's a fantastic point. And you're right. Definitely phones probably pushed that before anybody else. And I think that the idea of, even though I hate it, that everything has to be thinner, 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 I think also advanced technology because we were trying to be able to put batteries into continuously shrinking thickness of devices. The way that manufacturers typically rate their batteries is milliamp hours, or you'll see it as like an abbreviation of M and capital A-H represents the amount of stored energy in your battery. The milliamp hours rating, the higher it is, the longer the battery is supposed to last. Uh, and this measurement is used because it's easier for the consumer to understand. So that's kind of the reason why they went with this. So typically, if the manufacturer is not telling you how many hours you're going to get, you're going to see some type of number like 43 milliamp hours for your battery. And a battery with 53 milliamp hours is going to technically run longer than a battery with 43 milliamp hours. And that's the whole idea that you would use as a consumer, a really simple way for you to kind of understand the power that that has. However, different battery manufacturers, different quantity of cells, different power requirements could make that measurement not so comparable between devices. So if you were to take the same battery and run it on an Intel 12th gen, that same size milliamp battery, and then run that again on the Apple M1, that same size battery, the M1's going to last longer. That big little architecture we talked about is going to allow it to use a lot less energy so just because you have a bigger battery doesn't always mean you're going to get a ton of hours in there. And then there's a lot of people in the community that think watt hours is a much better rating to be used instead of the milliamp hours, but manufacturers typically avoid that. And again, the whole consensus is they're avoiding it because they want to stick to one measurement that they could throw out there to the consumers and say, this is what you're getting. Unfortunately for the consumers, they would also have to know about the processor, about the discrete GPU, about the screen and other things that are drawing power to understand if that's actually going to be great for them or not. When you think about it, when we are building our own desktops, we're looking at that. How much energy does this piece of hardware consume? Because you have to buy a power supply that will support that. When you are going to buy a laptop, they don't tell you how much each individual piece needs in energy in order to run, especially run at optimum. So you're a little more in the dark on those laptops, phones, or other components than you are in your desktop. It also sounds like it's kind of a marketing ploy of using bigger numbers than you know they could use with the watt hours or something like that. And it kind of makes me uh, compared to our previous conversations in Camera Corner, where this is kind of like the megapixels for laptops. It can be. I mean, in general, if you had two comparable machines, and I think this is where the consumers probably can get lost if they're not hardware addicts like us. If you have two machines and both of them are running the same AMD processor, they essentially have a very similar IPS screen, 2K, 1920 by 1080, whatever it is, if in general the items are the same and one has a 43 milliamp hour battery and the other has a 93, well, you're going to get a lot more time on that 93 milliamp hour battery than you are on the 43. So it's not a complete, it's not really scammy as much as it's just not the complete story, which is the big thing that I want to make sure people get across to them when they're thinking about this, that when you're looking at a laptop and battery is important for you, that it's not the only thing to consider there. The other thing you'll see manufacturers talk about a lot is their cells. So you'll see the milliamp hour battery rating, let's say it's 43, and then they'll put next to it with three cells with exclamation marks. Three And so cells. the question is, you get three no whole way. cells with this. No way. So this is going to be a big deal. You get three cells. What is the Dragon Ball Z character that something cell? Isn't there something with a cell? 
I don't know why it popped in my head. My brother watched Dragon Ball Z, but it was never in my wheelhouse. Literally named Cell. That's just his name. It's just Cell. It's just okay, Cell. cool. So I did get it right. Awesome. Cell is a fictional character and major villain for Dragon Ball Z manga and anime created by Akira Toriyama. Nice. That's so important to this conversation. That's not the Cell I'm talking about. The Cell I'm talking about happens to be the amount of cells that you have in your battery. Oh, so again, okay, that one. <laughs> if you open up your old laptop, if you find an old laptop that has the battery that you can pull out the back, you'll sometimes see that it's actually, if you were to open it up, it's just made of these cylindrical batteries that are wired together. And a lot of times they use the 18650 batteries of old, and you'll see those same batteries still available today that you could buy for flashlights or people who like to do the cloud chasing with vapes and things like that. All of those are 18650 batteries that power those things too. So this is technology that's been around for a long time. But as we talked about, now we're replacing things with lithium ion batteries. And we have, instead of these small battery concepts of the 18650, we have pouches. So in one of my latest videos on the DOS Geek channel, you can actually see this because I take apart an HP Spectre X360 and inside of that, I remove the battery and you can actually see there, if you look at the video, even though I don't point this out specifically in there, but you can see there's various pouches that make up this entire battery pack that's extraordinarily thin and small that they're able to fit in this very thin and small laptop in there. So each of those pouches would be considered, like we would before, an individual cell. But not like the Dragon Ball Z cell. cell. It's not that one. No, not oh. like the Dragon Ball Z. Sorry, I just want to make sure I'm following it right. Okay. Perfect. Uh, so just think of the cells as individual compartments in a battery that produce power. Typical cell has four main components. You got a positive electrode, negative electrode, separator, and electrolyte. And plants crave electrolytes, as Michael pointed out. Absolutely. So, so do batteries. So do batteries. Yes. <laughs> if you see the more cells, does it really matter? Kind of, but not really either. One advantage is the more cells you have, the less likely the batteries are going to degrade as fast because you're kind of moving to different pouches each time with the energy. So they're not all discharging and recharging really fast. You have different cells built up there. You have a more powerful computer. You'll see it likely as a battery with more cells, so it can produce more volts. But more cells doesn't necessarily mean more capacity Additionally, the more cells you have, the more weight you're going to have as well. Then you also have to deal with the fact that we're talking about the quality of the battery. Like if you have two screens that are 2K sitting beside each other, that 2K by itself does not mean that that one screen is, those two screens are the same. One may look completely better than the other, have better color reproduction, all those things. There's more things that go into it. So just because a manufacturer says they have three cells or six cells or nine cells doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually a good battery and that it's going to last. It just is something that could be important depending on the quality of the battery overall, milliamp hours, and of course your ability to take care of it. You can also think of that in the same way of different batteries or battery brands that you'll find at your local store. Not all batteries are created equal. Yeah, they might have the same voltage on them, but all of them are not going to last as long. So if there's something that you need a really high quality battery for, you're typically not getting them from the dollar store. <laughs> That's very true. And I need to know, Wendy, are you a copper top or a Energizer Bunny type of person? I am whatever they've got at Costco. <laughs> nice. Good answer. Michael? <laughs> I'm whatever. Michael, I know your answer. It's whatever's cheaper. Yeah. Yes, whatever. But also, um, if I have to choose between the two, uh, I, I, I prefer the Energizer Bunny because it keeps going and 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 going. Just like Michael's dad jokes. Going and going and going and going. Nice one. Yeah, I've gotten to the same point that batteries are so expensive now. Like when your toys, your kids get toys and they have battery requirement like we need six double a batteries and you go in the store to get a six pack of double a batteries and it's like twelve dollars like what what is happening to the world what is happening this can't be right i know this is a little bit off topic but one of the worst things i've ever printed from my 3d printer is a battery holder 
which made them more accessible to my children. So now I don't have batteries. That, that was one where it seemed like a good idea, and then the kids got but a hold of it. But it wasn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the other thing, which, Wendy, I know you wanted to chime in on this one as well, is the battery when you're buying a used laptop. So over time, batteries lose their full charging capacity. Now, many modern operating systems attempt to mitigate this loss by not charging your laptop battery to full 100%. In fact, Michael, you mentioned earlier the Lenovo M8. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the Lenovo M8 actually does not allow itself to be charged to 100%. It'll purposely keep itself around the 80% mark. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, There's a battery saver mode that when you dock it, it automatically keeps itself anywhere between 60 to 80 and it never goes beyond 80. And if you drain it and you you power it through the regular USB port, it will do a full charge. But if you're only using the dock to charge it, it will never go beyond a certain amount. It's very cool that they're building this in and this extends the life of that device which obviously in a tablet, it's very hard to get into the battery, not impossible, but they're very hard to get into. Generally have to be somebody who's worked on those things before uh, to be able to pull the screen off and undo the glue and everything else because nothing's repairable anymore. So keeping that battery alive as long as possible, it's very nice they do that because they could do the opposite and make it so that, you know, it goes bad really fast. So you have to buy another tablet, but then you probably wouldn't buy another one from them. So ultimately, I think they made a good decision. But if you're buying a used laptop, it's a good idea to understand the life of the battery that it has left. And a lot of times this is something you won't see on an eBay listing. So it's one of those situations where if you're interested in hunting down a laptop, I will generally send commands to the person who, you know, when you're asking questions about the device and ask them to run a couple commands so that I can understand and get a battery report and know how much charging capacity is left. And that's really the stat that you want to look for there. And so in Windows, you can run something like the power config slash battery report, and then you slash output that to an HTML file, and then they can send that to you, and it will tell you the charging capacity left from its original to what it is now. And in Linux, you can use the uPower command. So you can ask before you buy, so you know that because laptops, a lot of laptops are making it very difficult to change batteries, sometimes not even at all, realistically, you can at least have them go through some of the commands to make sure that there's a lot of life left in that battery. Because either way, it could be an expense that you need to add to the overall cost you're paying for that used laptop. That is a very good tip. And we have a bunch of older laptops that we use for school-related things. And it's really, really easy to notice that sometimes, even though it's the same machine and the same battery, they've not all been aged the same. And this last semester... Even though I would charge all batteries before we left, there were kids that were telling me that I have no battery or my battery is just about to die. So I always had to have a cable there and some power cords so they can keep going. My daughter has an older Lenovo laptop. I believe it's a Y700 gaming laptop. Has some discrete graphics in it. And the battery life on it is not very good anymore. So the plan is to replace the battery in hers. Thankfully, it's one that's really easy to get into. I've already replaced thermal paste in this laptop before, and now it's time for a battery upgrade. And that is one of the nicer options than maybe some of these older laptops or these gaming laptops where you still have access to the components is you can keep them going longer because you're able to do a battery upgrade. Absolutely. It makes a big difference if the battery is easy to get to or not. I love looking up if there's a particular laptop I've not gotten into in the past, looking up a iFixit video or a video on YouTube where someone's doing a teardown. That's why I did the X360 video I did, just because it was one of the new ones that had come out. And if people needed to know how to get inside, number one, they hid the screws, which really annoyed me. So that would be the number one tip of seeing it. Number two is you'd see how to get into that battery and be able to replace it uh, and know if that's a machine you want to buy because it might be something you have to work on in the future. It goes into perfectly the next section of getting the most life out of your battery because you mentioned you could have two similar machines, but they could have a very different amount of life left in their battery. And we know that all batteries degrade And you're going to start to see a noticeable reduction right around the 18 to 24 months, especially in your phones. 
I don't know about you guys, but I notice it in my phones before anything else. Like laptops sometimes, because I keep them plugged in so much, it's not as easy to usually see it. Or the charge capacity stays very high because of the operating system, the chips, and all of the new technology with keeping the battery's life. If I keep it in plugged in most of the time, it's really not getting use a lot. So I don't notice that degradation in battery life. But on my phones, man, when your phone gets to about a year, year and a half, definitely at two years, you see a huge difference in the amount of charge that that phone can hold. I have a phone that I am a big fan of and I keep it for nostalgia purposes, but it is absolutely worthless because the battery lasts no longer than 10 minutes. I haven't really counted exactly how long it is, but I think it's even less than that. I think it's like five to eight minutes, but I only keep it because it's a phone that I was a big fan of, but I wish I could replace the battery in it, but unfortunately that's not possible. So it is now a... A wonderful paperweight. You get eight minutes to make a call. I like it. It would be a great way if you had somebody who always took too long on the phone when you called them, <laughs> That's you know, to way. limit the amount of conversation you have with them. You call them on your eight-minute phone. I guarantees they can't talk any longer than that. Oops, my battery's about to die. I'm so sorry. I, res- I respect the <laughs> optimism, Ryan. <laughs> Trying to yeah. look on the bright side. Find a way to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely seen this happen in phone batteries, and I think they're working on that too. The latest phone I have is the OnePlus 9, and if you are on the Oxygen software, it does have slower charging at night, which is really, really cool to help preserve that battery. So it'll only charge up to a certain percentage, and then once it hits, depending on where your alarm is set and whatnot, it'll finish charging just before you wake up, just before your alarm goes off, and you're taking it off the charger. That's a really cool I idea. am currently running Lineage OS, and I think I have some settings in there for that as well. Well, in general, you don't want to keep your device on charge 24-7. This is mostly for laptops now we're talking about. But I would say a lot of this has been mitigated by the operating systems themselves are building in this protection. So if you don't see 100% charge for your laptop, I actually see this quite a bit in troubleshooting and forums and things where people are asking the community, hey, I got this new laptop. It's not going to 100% or a tablet. Is something wrong? And it's not. It's likely, well, it could be, but it's likely not. It's likely your operating system is protecting you. And generally, if you hover over your battery icon or go into your settings, it will tell you about that or read your manual about the device, about some of the mitigations that it does. But in general, you want to use those batteries every now and then. You don't want to keep them on charge 24-7. If you have an older laptop, you definitely don't want to keep it on charge 24-7. You want to give those batteries some work out there. The other thing you want to do is make sure that you're not fully draining your batteries. So you don't want to get to the point where your laptop is having to shut off entirely or your phone shutting off because you've just run it all the way to zero. Again... If you have a newer device, it's generally not going to allow you to do that. But how many times have you seen people get to zero? It shuts off with safety protocol and they immediately go to try to power it back on to keep using it. And really what your operating system is doing here is trying to keep it so that you're not draining that battery all the way down. So it's much better to try to borrow a cord, find somebody else uh, that can lend you a battery backup or something else so that you can use your phone without draining it down to zero And then you want to make sure you're not running your device in extreme heat. This includes, especially even though it's called a laptop, not smothering it on your lap or on a pillow or sitting it out in the sun on your dashboard, which I see a lot of people doing this. They leave their laptop Mm. right on their dashboard in their car. And all of this is killing the life of your laptop. Probably also hurting the screen and other components for that kind of thing. Yeah, it could it could do permanent damage for sure. Yep. Yeah, I can't I will never leave a computer in a in a car in the sun regardless for, you know, more than like 10 minutes or something because of just paranoia because I did have a experience when I was a teenager where uh, I accidentally left a screen in the car for a couple hours and came back, and it, it was just a monitor. It wasn't a laptop, but the monitor was completely fried. Like, it was worthless at that point. And I thought, well, that's a lesson learned. You know, at least it wasn't a laptop, I guess, but it was still, uh, it's kind of shocking to see how bad it happened and so how quick it did it. We do all that work in our main systems to have fans running. We talk about the fans and the cooling capacity of our laptops to keep the components good. 
So it just makes sense not to leave it sitting in hot cars, sitting in the sun. I think that's probably one of my favorite features about some of the Microsoft Surface line and why I don't feel as bad when my kids use it because, yeah, they set it down in the carpet, but all of that heat components are facing up and out, not down in the carpet. So they get a little bit more leeway and being able to play with those devices just because of the way they're built. The other thing that I see people do, like the rubber stopper that you have to remove on the HP Spectre X360 in the video that I did, you have to remove that in order to get to the screws. So I've seen many laptops on eBay where the person needed to get into their laptop, they're reselling it, but they pulled the rubber stopper off and threw it away. What that rubber stopper is meant to do is give it just a little bit, not only not scratch the bottom, but also give it a little bit of lift off of a surface. If it's sitting directly against the surface, even if it's a hard surface, there's not a lot of airflow going on. It's like an air conditioner, anything else. You want to keep as much airflow as possible. So if you do end up destroying the rubber stoppers on the bottom of your laptop, replace them. They can be important. And if you like to use your laptop in the bed and all those type of things, get yourself a proper laptop stand. They have them that have like the bean cushion underneath or they're like a partial table and then the bottom's just a nice cushy pillow. But essentially it's a hard surface that you can put on your lap that makes it so that your laptop fans can actually circulate the air and things. And that goes into making sure the ventilation, dust, debris, all of that stuff is removed from your machine will also help your battery life. Because again, you don't have that heat being trapped inside of the machine, which is affecting your battery. And then replace your battery when it gets to less than 80% of its original charge capacity is the general rule. Depending on how often you use it, how long it's been, those type of things, that may be a little bit uh, too aggressive at 80%. But just something to keep in mind is the general rule that people say in the community about 80% of its original charge capacity, it's time to consider or starting to plan for replacing it. When it comes to the heat... I have a quick question, hopefully a quick question, I guess. Is it a good idea to get one of those? You're talking about those tables you can get for your bed. What about the kind that have the fans built into them so it's blowing cool air towards the towards the device? Is that a good idea or are those kind of like gimmicky? I think for the most part, a lot of those can be gimmicky. I have had a couple of them that were good enough that were pushing air around the laptop circulating the air pretty well. They're very powerful fans, but they generally, for the most part, especially the lower price ones you'll see on Amazon are, are kind of gimmicky and, and anything else, they're kind of pulling dust and things and pushing it into the ventilation of your laptop. Mm. It just depends on several different factors. Number one, is there stoppers between the fans that are under that table and the laptop itself, is there some type of lift between those so the air can actually circulate properly and it's not just pushing stuff up into your fans, which isn't helping anything. Number two is the placement of the fans based on against the placement of the ventilation of your laptop. So there are laptops that the ventilation comes out the back of the laptop and then you have fans that are underneath it in those table stands that have fans built in that would be a good use of that, right? It's at least providing some additional cooling against the frame of the laptop and it's not impacting the ventilation of the laptop built in because the vents on the laptop are in the back. But the vents of the laptop are on the bottom and then you have these fans just pushing air against as your laptop's trying to push fair air out. I don't think it's doing much good at all. Okay, good to know. That is a really good point. And you should also keep in mind that if you have a laptop sitting on your counter, especially kitchen counters, um, having something between your laptop and the counter is really good to have. My in-laws actually had the finish of their counter separate from the wood portion of it, just from that consistent heat sitting on the counter. Interesting. Wow. And here's another tip for you, Michael. Don't throw batteries into fire. Oh, good idea. Because it might explode. Yeah. Could explode indeed. Yep. I understand a little bit of, ba of basic physics. <laughs> Don't All right. I just wanted to help you out in case you didn't know. In case that was your next question you wanted to ask, but we're embarrassed to. I wanted to make sure we just covered it well, right there. Well, maybe I, I was wondering if, like, if maybe the electrolytes will stop it from exploding because it's, you know, it's what batteries crave. 
So I don't know. That's what plants and batteries create. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. Bury your batteries in a garden. No, don't do that. I'm totally (laughs) kidding. Recycle them properly. Make sure you recycle your batteries properly, truthfully. The other thing I want to say is that the best battery, and I think we've made this clear, the best battery you can get is a replaceable one. The idea of soldering, gluing, making battery replacement impossible by the average user is, in my opinion, the biggest scam ever run on the consumer when it comes to laptops and phones in the last decade. And repairability should matter to you most, which is why on the last Destination Linux episode, we all unanimously loved the Frameworks laptop because everything in that laptop is completely replaceable. And that was very awesome uh, to see from a manufacturer, something that you don't often see anymore from laptop makers. Yeah, absolutely. And also with that particular laptop, now I'm not a big fan of when one company copies another company's ideas, but I want every company to copy Framework's idea of making everything popular, modular and replaceable and stuff like that. It just makes sense. And if they can make a computer that looks as good as it does, and has all that modularity, then why can't these bigger companies even do it better? Like, it just seems kind of ridiculous that this whole glued-in battery concept is a thing, and that, and that people are not losing their minds on how incredibly wasteful and just absurd that this process is. Now, speaking of replaceable batteries, that means you can remove that battery. But what if you want to remove it from a device that you would be able to power it on, let's say for a desktop replacement laptop like I talked about earlier, where the battery's not that great anyway, and you don't always need it, so you could take it out when you don't need it if you're not going to be traveling or anything. So let's say they wanted to put it on their desk and power it on. Is there any kind of suggestions related to how you store it? Like, should you store it in a box? Should it be stored in like just open air or whatever? As far as how to store it, you want a dry place, obviously. You want to avoid warm or hot areas. So you don't want to place it in an area where over an oven or something that randomly gets hot. You also don't want to place it in a garage that has no temperature control in there, especially if you live in a hot climate. You also don't want to store it in a freezing area either. It can shorten the overall life of a battery. Now you can get, I know a lot of people use this trick where you take the AA batteries, you stick them in the freezer, and then you can get some life back out of the batteries if they've died in things. We've all done that. I would not do that with a laptop battery. It's a different kind of battery altogether. Not worth it. Um, You don't want to put anything in a metal container, obviously, or any situation, depending on the type of battery and things, where the connectors that connect into the computer, which are obviously making that power transfer connection, can be touching something metallic. So you don't want to store it, say, in the same box that you're storing a bunch of other batteries, or you don't want to store it in a situation where you're going to have a bunch of coins or something else metallic that could be touching those connector points and draining that battery. This could create swelling, it could create fires and other things from that. So in general, you just want to try to keep it in pretty much the same conditions you would want to store your laptop in, in general. Good to know. So hopefully this helps you understand a little more about batteries. When you're looking at batteries, don't be overtaken by the amount of cells. It's interesting. It's cool to know, but now you understand a little bit more about what that means. Don't necessarily be taken about the amount of milliamp hours because depending on the type of processor and GPU and things that that machine has, that may be really good. It may be really bad when you're comparing two computers that are not equitable in the type of processor and things that they have in them. In general, I think you can look at a lot of manufacturers now will tell you that they get eight or 10 or 12 or 16 hours. As a general rule of thumb, if I can't find a review of somebody who's actually tested it, I will generally do about 75% of whatever they're claiming, sometimes 65% of what they're claiming and assume that's what I could actually get out of the device. But battery technology has come a long way. It's really cool to see all the new shapes and sizes and everything they're doing to make it so that we can have more battery in an even smaller and thinner package out there. So hopefully this helps you all get the most life out of your laptop batteries, whether you're purchasing used, brand new, or just have your current machine. What powers my passwords? That's Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the pass manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords 
safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to get that premium account that just starts at $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want to show your appreciation for this awesome project and get that premium edition, especially where it starts at just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us about tilt shift lenses. Phase one just announced a new tilt only lens. And because of that news, it made me think, oh man, we've got to cover this on Hardware Addicts. This is an amazing piece of hardware. Now the tilt function of a lens is really awesome if you're doing landscape style photography. So you have a flower in front and you want to get that mountain that's way in the back in focus too. Now on a regular lens, one that doesn't tilt, you would turn down your aperture. So say you'd go from an f4 to maybe an f22. Now that's not letting in a whole lot of light at that point. So you usually have to slow down your shutter speed and you can possibly get both of those in focus. Now with a lens that tilts, you are literally tilting it down a series of degrees and it actually widens that depth of field with that tilt. So now you can use a much more open f-stop, say maybe an f8 so your shutter speed doesn't have to be as slow. And the most amazing thing with this is it's actually so much crisper. You can get much better, much more detailed landscapes with a lens like this because everything is so much more crisp and gives you a much better field of view. Now the shift function was actually developed for architecture photography. They spend so much time building these different buildings and they want their straight lines to look straight. So you will literally shift the lens up, down, left or right. Typically you're shifting it up if you're taking a picture of say trees that you want to keep vertical or a building you're wanting to keep vertical. This is also a great way to do panoramas. You can keep the camera body in the exact same place and you're just shifting the lens from side to side and in the middle and being able to blend all of those pictures together in post. Now, they're not the cheapest lenses in the world, but this new one from phase one mm, takes the cake. It's a 40 millimeter lens. So not the widest lens that's out there. It's in an F4, but this is a tilt lens, so that's not as big of a deal. It doesn't let in a lot of light that many other 40 millimeters do, but this is still gonna give you amazing images and it better at almost $12,000. It comes in at $11,990. Ouch. Ouch. That hurts, that, that hurts my soul. Is it really that advantageous to have tilt and not just manually do it? $11,990 advantageous? If your life is landscape photography, if your income is based on landscape or architecture photography, yes, it might be totally worth that amount. You can find a lot of other tilt shift lenses in the range of three to $500. So they're definitely not a cheap lens. And I've seen some, you know, in the $3,000 range or more, they're definitely more expensive than maybe some of your other standard lenses but they are a tool with a very specific function. And if you need that sharpness, if you need that for architecture photography, it's definitely well worth the price. I noticed that this particular lens, it looks like has Wi-Fi connectivity and things built into it as well, or maybe that's the whole camera. Is it all one kit or is it just, it's just a lens, right? Yeah, that's just the lens. So phase one is the manufacturer. This lens is made for one of their specific cameras, the 
X-T-I-Q-4. Isn't that a fantastic ah. mouthful? And this lens has an even bigger mouthful of a name. But yes, it is a very high-quality mirrorless camera that is made for professionals, specifically lightweight cameras to go in the field for landscape. So, Michael, I know the $11,990 sounds like a lot, but I'm thinking a business expense here <laughs> because I really need to take some good landscape photographs for our website. Well, for Destination Linux, Hardware Addicts, Tux Digital, you know, a, we could tilt it. It's an interesting proposition you have there. And I have one yeah. follow-up question to see whether or not it's a, it's a good idea. Have you turned your camera off from auto? No, but I assume <laughs> I could just take these pictures in auto mode. Just tilt them in you auto. Just tilt it in auto. Yeah, Leave it in auto mm, and tilt it. No. Let's, oh. let's not say we didn't. <laughs> Darn it. So I, I, apparently it can't well, be an expense, unfortunately, then. <laughs> I guess it's been denied then. Darn it. If you guys are spending that much on camera gear, then I'm the one that gets the upgrade. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I guess we should send it to Wendy who would actually know what she's doing to take the picture there. I mean, it's very cool. Like, I would love to see this in action of it actually tilting it. I I'm wondering how I see the body frame and it's got kind of these big circles and things all around it to try to tilt, but I guess keep it still connected to the overall mirrors behind the scenes and not move it too far tilt it too far so where it's not connecting the light this one definitely has some dramatic flair when it comes to the overall looks of it not all of them have that big round circle on the back of it it is definitely unique in its overall look but tilt shift lenses are an awesome thing to keep in mind for anybody out there who is really serious about landscape or architecture photography you don't even necessarily have to buy one there is several different lens rental places out there. So if it's one thing you wanted to go test, you could rent the lens first and make sure it is a purchase that is actually going to be useful for you. Also, be sure to get insurance on that rental. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Or get yourself a camera stand that tilts and yep. it's about 45 bucks. That's another option. Those really old cameras used to do this. And it's not the camera stand. You don't want to be moving the body of the camera, just the lens. So on those really old cameras, the ones that had that accordion style look, you could do this without needing a special lens because they were built in order to tilt up, down, and whatnot. But the new lenses are pretty solid. And so unless you have one that's built for tilt, it's not, like I said, it's not the camera body that's tilting down. It is literally the camera body has to be on a horizontal plane up and down and only the lens is tilting to get that advantage of larger depth of field. So Ryan, unfortunately, we can't justify an expense for getting this kind of lens, but maybe okay. we could justify an expense of getting one of those old accordion cameras so we have the manual tilt built in. I like it. And you know what? It reminds me of those accordion straws that the kids get, which is ridiculous because I want them. Exactly. Like they, when you go to a restaurant and you sit down, they give you a boring old adult straw, but they give the kids the accordion straws. Super lame. I steal the accordion straw for myself. Give the kids the boring one. I've lived longer. I deserve it. <laughs> yeah. I'm paying for this. I get the accordion straw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much fun. And I think that we should bring the accordion style back to cameras Agreed. because it was way cheaper than $11,000 and you could move it anywhere you want. In fact, it's kind of like a spy camera thing. If the accordion goes long enough, you could look like you're taking a shot in front, but tilt the accordion backwards, snap people from behind, then move it back because it's an accordion. It could go anywhere. This was, this was the future and we didn't realize it. Except for they are massive and there is no auto mode and you need to know how to process the film. And typically in these, it wasn't film. It was actually plates. So probably not. Okay. No auto mode, huh? So Darn. Wendy had to no ruin our mode. fun with this. Maybe we can contact Sony and get them to make a mirrorless accordion camera. Yes. That's the ticket right there. <laughs> We will reach out. We have a lot of power. This looks really cool. It's interesting. I didn't even know it existed. 
I didn't know it was a thing. I've never heard of it before, but it's pretty neat that it does. And if you have that kind of money, well, let us know how you like it <laughs> and then send us some of your money. That's it. Our 65th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on the Tux Digital Network. Head to tuxdigital.com to check out all the amazing podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time for another electrolyte-charged episode of Hard Radix, the podcast that plants crave. And that's an accordion podcast. I had nothing. No, that was But I wanted to work accordion into there. It was bad. The accordion Leave the podcast. dad jokes to me, Ryan. The tilting accordion <laughs> tilt of... We tilt like an accordion. <laughs>